What does it take to have a life worth living? What is it, if someone tells you, hey, get a life, what would that look like? So everybody is trying to figure that out. What does a life fully alive look like? Remember when I was younger, there were two things I was looking for in life. I was on a quest. The first one, to find the ultimate party. That was one of my quests. Second quest was find an ultimate purpose. So to find something that would definitely catch my passions and something that would give me some direction as well. Well, here's some quotes from people who have sort of asked these questions. This is from Annie Dillard, one of my favorite authors. From Pilgrim at Tinker Creek, she says this. There's always the temptation in life to diddle around making itsy-bitsy friends and meals and journeys for years on end. It's also self-conscious, so apparently moral. I won't have it. The world is wilder than that in all directions, more dangerous, more extravagant and bright. We're making hay when we should be making whoopee. We're raising tomatoes when we should be raising Cain or Lazarus. And then George Bernard Shaw, Irish playwright who wrote many, many plays, including the one that eventually became My Fair Lady, he says this, There is the true joy in life, the being used for a purpose recognized by yourself as a mighty one, the being thoroughly worn out before you're thrown on the scrap heap, the being a force of nature instead of a feverish self Selfish little clod of ailments and grievances, complaining that the world will not devote itself to making you happy. And then finally, Dan Erickson made this comment. He said, I don't fear failure in life. I fear succeeding at something that is not important. And so the quest continues. A life of passion, a life of impact. What does that look like? Well, we're going to look at an extraordinary episode in the life of Paul to get some clues as to what it means to have a life worth living. Get some clues there. Now, none of us are going to be another Apostle Paul, but there's some principles here that give us a sense of what are the elements of what does it mean to have a life really fully alive and worth living. Now, this event that we'll be looking at takes place in the city of Caesarea in Israel. Caesarea was a Roman administrative center to the whole region. It was located on the Mediterranean coast. It was a beautiful city. And to get a sense of its importance and its grandeur, here are some slides. So here it shows where it is compared to where Jerusalem is. So it's on the coast, a beautiful setting. This is what it looks like now. So you begin to get a little sense of the harbor. Herod the Great built this It was the largest man-made harbor in the Mediterranean at the time. It was absolutely huge. This is a rendering of what it looked like at the time. A magnificent city, beautiful in all of its grandeur. Shows you all the Roman elements of what the city looked like. So this is where this event took place. Magnificent. This gives you a little sense. This is one of the temples. They didn't mess around when they were building their temples there. Magnificent, impressive. This This was Herod's palace. This was uh, where, palace, where Herod would, would hang out, this, but this being a Roman center, this is where the governor would hang out. The governor would not spend much time in Jerusalem, but he would spend his time here. Makes sense. I would too. So this is where it takes place, this event that we're going to look at. So here's what happens. We're, by the way, we're working in Acts chapter 25 and 26 if you want to be tracking with me in your Bibles. So here is a description of what was taking place in that particular city. So the next day, 
King Herod, he's King Agrippa, and Bernice, the queen, came with great pomp, and they entered the audience room with the high-ranking officers called tribunes and the leading men of the city. At the command of the Roman governor Festus, who had replaced, he was like a Pontius Pilate. He had been assigned by the emperor of Rome. So Festus is there. Paul is brought in. And then the passage goes on to say this. Let me continue reading here. Festus said to King Agrippa and all who were present with us, he says, you see this man. The whole Jewish community has petitioned me about him in Jerusalem and here in Caesarea. They're shouting that he ought not to live any longer. So they wanted him to die. I found he had done nothing deserving of death. But because he made his appeal to the emperor Caesar, I decided to send him to Rome. But I have nothing definite to write to his majesty about him. Therefore, I've brought him before all of you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that as a result of this investigation, I may have something to write to the emperor when I send him. For I think it's unreasonable to write, to send on a prisoner without specifying the charges against him. So, this is quite an event. Try to imagine the scene. The huge contrast between all those, the audience, and the solitary individual who's standing there in chains. So you've got two categories. Number one, you're in this magnificent audience hall. You've got the king and the queen there. The Roman governor Festus is there, and it says they enter in with great pomp. I don't know what that meant. I don't know if they were blowing horns. I'm not sure exactly. But they all come in. This is very in full regalia. High-ranking officers or tribunes. A tribune is someone who was over 1,000 soldiers. And so you've got a bunch of them there. So you've got the leading. You've got the prominent people. You've got the men of the city, one after another, coming in in their splendid clothes. So the powerful and the power brokers, the wealthy, the beautiful, the who's who of the city and of the country were all present. So they had political power, military power. They were wealthy. They were well-connected. These were the movers and the shakers of the region. They were the celebrities. These are the people that were envied, that were talked about, that were watched on TV, if they ever had TVs back then. They'd be watching on TV. These are the people that'd be in the news. They'd be in the tabloids. They'd be in the reality TV series. I could imagine there'd be a reality TV series called Tribunes and Their Wives. And everybody would be watching because it'd be so exciting to see, envious of their lives. They'd, They'd be interviewed by Oprah, They'd be in People Magazine. They'd have a huge following on Twitter. So, we're talking about authority. You're talking about the ability to do whatever you want to do, to buy whatever you want to buy. Command and it's done. Life worth living. So on one side, you've got all of that. And on the other side, Paul. Little Jewish guy, follower of Jesus of Nazareth, a prisoner in chains, accused of being worthy of death by the religious authorities. So, hmm. Which side are you going to choose? Which life to choose? The life of those in the audience that looks pretty inviting or the life of this prisoner who is speaking? It would appear to be a no-brainer. Or is it? Or is it? So who are the blessed ones? Who are the fortunate ones? Who are the ones with a life worth celebrating, a life worth living? And who is in chains? So in this context, and that's why I say this is an amazing episode, in this context, 
Paul says this, because there's an interaction going on between him and the king and the Roman governor, and, and Paul then turns his attention to the king in the midst of this interaction because the king says this, when Paul starts zeroing in on the king right there, the king says this to him, so do you think that in such a short time you are going to persuade me to become a Christian, Paul? And Paul says this, a short time or a long time. Not only you, I pray God that not only you, O king, but all who are listening to me, everybody here right now, may become what I am, such as I am. He's saying to these people, look, if you could only crawl inside my skin, experience the life I'm living, how I would love for you to have that. Now this is an amazing statement from Paul, particularly if you understand what he has been through in his life, and particularly the last two years. So what brought him to this point where he's in this gathering with all of these people? Well, you can go back to chapter 21 of the book of Acts, and there's a two-year process that takes place. Paul had just finished doing three missionary journeys, goes back to Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, a huge event happens. Everybody wants to kill Paul, so there's this almost like a riot in the temple. So he gets arrested by the temple police. And then there's thing going on, so the Roman commander hears that there's all this commotion going on, so he goes and he rescues Paul. Pulls him out of there. And, he, and thinking, because everybody's crying, this guy should be, should be put to death. And so the, the, the Roman commander assumes that he's one of these rebels. So he says, so are you not the Egyptian terrorist? Nope. So then Paul gets a chance to address the people. And he says something that gets them all the more upset. So the commander then has to take him away so to keep him safe. Then the next day, and then they're going to beat him. So the guy's going to flog him because he assumes this guy's worth flogging. As they're getting ready to, Paul says, you know, is it, is it legal for you to punish some, a Roman citizen before he's been really accused and heard? And so this according, kind of scares everybody because you could not do that. You'd be in big trouble if you did that to a Roman citizen. So he plays his Roman citizen card. Then the next day, he's presented to the Sanhedrin, all the religious authorities. And once again, he says something that causes this huge explosion. Everybody's mad at him. And again, the Roman commander has to come to save his life. Well, the next morning, because of all the commotion and the, that he's causing there, it says this. Forty plus men, more than 40 men, get together and they make an oath. An oath to not eat or drink until they had call, killed Paul. Now, how would you like to have some 40 rough, tough people full of anger? They make an oath. We're not going to eat or drink until we kill this guy. You kind of go, whoa, what the heck? Well, his nephew gets wind of it. And the nephew goes to Paul. And Paul says, go tell the commander. The commander hears about this. And he says, I'm not going to let this happen on my watch. So the commander pulls 200 soldiers together, getting two centurions to pull their men in, 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen to take Paul to Caesarea that very night. So there's 470 soldiers taking Paul to Caesarea because he's caused such a commotion. So he gets there, and he interfaces with the current governor, who was there, Roman governor, who after a while he hears him. Then, 
Nothing else happens for two years. Paul hangs out in Caesarea for the next two years. Finally, a new, a new governor is assigned by the emperor. His name is Festus. He shows up. He goes down to Jerusalem to say hello to all the people there, to kind of go through the protocol. They mention to him, there's a, a prisoner up in Caesarea, and, and we think he, need, he should be executed. So he goes up to Caesarea, interfaces with Paul, say, what's going on here? Why do they want it? What's, what's with this going on? Would you be willing to go back to Jerusalem to be tried, Paul? And Paul is aware, no, I better not do that. As a matter of fact, it says that there was a plot to ambush him and kill him on the way back to Jerusalem. So he's aware of that. So he tells the Roman governor, he says, I'm not going to Jerusalem. I appeal to Caesar. And the Roman governor says, you appeal to Caesar, you're a Roman citizen, to Caesar, you're going to go. So that's exactly what took place. So he had gone through all of this. That doesn't include all that, he had, that preceded him, getting beaten, stoned, shipwrecked. I mean, the guy's life was quite a challenge. So you take all this, and then you, you factor in what he just told these people who have it all. And he said, if you could only live my life, if you could enter into my experience, how I would love that for you. Matter of fact, I'm praying to God that you would experience that, that you could have this kind of a life. So he apparently was convinced he had a life worth living. You know, we'd go say, wait a minute, Paul. It was because you're following Christ, because you're a Christian, that you're experiencing all this. And you want them to experience that? And he'd say, look, it's worth whatever you go through. It's worth it, what I have, because of Christ. So, why? In what ways would Paul's life be a picture, an example of what it means to be fully alive, to have a life worth living? Well, Paul's life can be an example to us. It can be an example of what that looks like, a life worth living, a life of eternal impact. There are so many elements, and what are some of the traits that we can pull out of here? Well, there are so many elements you could pull out of the life of Paul. But drawing from this particular passage, I'm going to pull out three little elements, three traits, three words that would describe Paul and his life, particularly as seen in this context. Now, again, none of us are going to be like Paul. Paul had a unique calling from God. But God wants all of us to live a life full, truly, of his life. So we're going to look at that. We're going to look at that. So here's first, the first trait of Paul that we can see here. Paul was free. Now it might be ironic to use this word because he's the guy in chains, but he's the one who is free. He was free because what he had to say was this surprising expression that he was absolutely not the one that was in chains. I had a professor who used to say this. He says, you know, and he was from Philadelphia, interesting guy. He, he'd say, you know, if he sees somebody, he'd go, hey, how you doing? And they'd say, okay, under the circumstances. And so he'd say, well, what are you doing under there? So, so he was challenging his friend to reevaluate what was really controlling his life. So freedom, freedom from being controlled by your circumstances or by your appetites. That's what freedom is, from being controlled by them, freedom from living under the circumstances and being controlled and pushed 
from one side to the next by what's going on around you, what's going on inside of you. Free to live above his circumstances. He was free. Something like a tree in a desert who has its roots down to this unseen source of water. It's underground spring. Jeremiah 17 says this, describing a tree planted by the water. It says this, This tree does not fear when the heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought. And it never fails to bear fruit. Because the fruitfulness of this tree was not dependent upon the weather, the climate. It was dependent upon the unending source of life-giving water. So freedom, we can say it this way. Freedom is not the ability to do whatever you want. Because everybody in his audience could have done basically whatever they wanted. But they weren't free. Freedom is not the ability to do whatever we want, even though that's the way we'd like to see it. It's rather the power and the opportunity to be the person and to fulfill the purpose for which you were created. It's that power It's the opportunity to be the person and to fulfill the purpose for which you were created, for which you were given life. And that is a description of Paul. Fully human, fully alive, reflecting the intended design of God and the intended purpose that God had for him. Paul was owned. He was owned. He was empowered by one purpose and one person. And he says that in Acts chapter 20. So in Acts chapter 20, he stops off in Ephesus. He's interacting with the, with the Ephesian elders there. And he says, you know, the Spirit of God tells me, he says, I'm going to Jerusalem. The Spirit of God tells me that from that point on, I'm going to be suffering. I'm going to be arrested. It's not going to be really pretty. So they're saying, Paul, don't go. But he says this, but my life means nothing to me except for fulfilling the purpose that God has given me. And that's to proclaim the grace and the love of my God. And so there's no stopping me. So he was owned by this person. He was owned by this calling and nothing could stop him. No matter what the circumstances, he would do it. And so for us, if we grab hold of that type of a relationship, that type of understanding of here's why I'm alive, here's why I'm on planet earth, here's who I am in Christ, then I'll be able to not be controlled by my circumstances, or by my appetites. And so I'll be able to say this, I will not be unfaithful to my spouse, whether he or she is sensitive to me and meets my needs and desires or not. I will not cheat. I will not go to a porn site. I will not abuse drink or drugs or food. I'm not going to harbor anger and bitterness and hatred against someone who hurt me or hurt someone I love. I will learn to forgive. I will not be controlled by that which is outside of me, pulling my one, one way, this way, another, or driving me from the inside out. Ain't going to happen. So Paul goes on. Look at, look, listen to these words in 2 Corinthians. He's writing to the Corinthians. And this is another description of, of this guy's amazing ability to be free. So he says, whether, rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. So he's saying, look. But then he goes on to give this list of what's not really that 
attractive. He says this, so in great endurance, in troubles, in hardships, in distresses, in beatings, imprisonments, riots, in hard work, sleepless nights and hunger. So remember, he's commending himself. Is he crazy? Nights of hunger, dying. So then I love these phrases now. He says, dying and yet we live on. Beaten and yet not killed. Sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Poor yet making many rich. Having nothing and yet possessing everything. What kind of a life would I be able to live if you'd be able to live if we had that perspective that Paul just had? Sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Poor yet making many rich. Having nothing and yet possessing everything. This is someone who is free. This is someone who is unstoppable. Able to face whatever. And all of this, not to mention all that preceded. And then he says this, how I wish you could experience my life. What I have, this freedom. So he was free. But the second word that we can pull out from this event, he was convinced. He was convinced of the fundamental truth and the reality of Jesus Christ. Now, my sense is that the majority of of Christians, those who consider themselves believers, when push comes to shove concerning the absolute truth of the Scriptures, of the Gospel, of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, they're really not convinced. Questions get kind of planted in our head. You know, maybe we read a book, we go to a university class, we watch a TV program, and Modern scholars will tell you about, you know, the real life of Jesus or why this, we can't believe this or we can't believe that. And so whatever it may be, little doubts are planted, little stress fractures in our faith begin to appear. Maybe not foundational to our faith, but maybe about the character of God. Does he really care after what just happened? But Paul, in spite of all that he had experienced, was convinced. And he was convinced, and he used these two words because what happened, there was an interesting exchange that takes place here. So Paul is telling his story of here's what happened to my life. Here's why, here's what brought me here. And he, and he talks about Christ and meeting the Christ and Christ being resurrected. And, and Festus, the newly arrived governor, he's, he's, a, he's, he's a Roman guy. He doesn't know any of this stuff. It sounds absurd to him about him talking about someone that was resurrected. And and he cries out in the middle of what Paul's saying. He says, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you insane. And Paul responds and says, I'm not insane. Excellent, Festus. The words that I'm sharing with you, he says, are true and reasonable. So he looks at Festus as Roman. He says, look, these words are true. What I'm telling you about my story, my encounter with Christ, his transforming work in my life, these words are true and they're reasonable. So for Paul, he was absolutely convinced in his head and in his heart. Now we can continually to have some of those challenges brought to us. Well, Paul certainly had challenges, but there was something that kept him convinced. 
And what I'm suggesting here, it was by history. In other words, the facts. The facts that he was aware of, of recently had taken place, real events, and the evidence of the prophetic word. And then also his own story. So the facts of what took place that he was able to observe and experience, and then what he actually also journeyed. So where does this come from? Where does this conviction come from? Well, first, history, the facts. Well, what had recently taken place? Well, what had recently taken place, actually within just not too many years, was was the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When you go through the book of Acts, what the apostles are preaching without any hesitation and repeatedly is that Jesus Christ was crucified, died, buried, and then he was raised again. Crucified, buried, raised again. Crucified, buried, raised again. They kept repeating. He was raised again. That's what launched this whole new life. When you look at the opening of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul's going on to say, look, here's what we're, here's what we're building our lives upon, that Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures and that he was raised again according to the Scriptures. And then after his resurrection, he appeared to Peter. And then after that, he appeared to all the 12 apostles. And then after that, he appeared to over 500 people at one time. And then he appeared to this person. Then he appeared to this person. Then he appeared to this person. And Paul finally says, and finally, he appeared to me. So what we have here is 500 people at one time seeing him. This was not like a vision in the night of people who were just desperately missing Jesus. For 40 days and 40 nights, this Jesus spent time with hundreds of people. Walking with them, talking with them, eating with them, joking with them. Touching them, them touching him. Undeniable facts that he really is alive. 40 days and 40 nights. And then, he, and then he goes to heaven. And so these facts could not be denied. And every one of those apostles went to their death declaring that Jesus is Lord and he's the resurrected Lord. They went to their death proclaiming that. Now, I do know that people die for things that are not true. They believe something, but it's not true. Nobody's going to die for something they know is not true. So recant. Take it away. Say that Jesus isn't resurrected, and we will not put you in this this bin of boiling oil. Well, somebody's going to go, you know what? You know, he really wasn't. They all said, hey, you want me to deny what I know? I touched him. I talked with him. I saw him. He hugged me. I hugged him. He's real. He's resurrected. I can't deny what I saw. So there were facts that Paul referred to. But he's also referring to Scripture, according to the Scriptures, according to the, in the prophecies, because Paul mentions that, that, that what, I'm, what I'm going on is what I experienced, what I saw, but also what the prophecies were. So in his interaction, so the Roman governor gets on him and says, you're crazy. Paul looks at him and says, no, I'm not crazy. My words are words of truth. And they're reasonable. So then he turns, and Paul turns to Agrippa. And this is where Agrippa gets a little upset. But he turns to Agrippa, he says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? Because he had already said, I believe everything that agrees with the law and that which is written in the prophets. He had said that. And then Paul had also said, I'm saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen. That the Christ would suffer and, and at the first to rise from the dead. He would proclaim light to his own people and to the Gentiles. And so he says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do. Can't deny what had transpired, 
what the others saw, but you can't deny either that all of what transpired we have seen is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophets. So there's evidence of just what was seen in recent history, the facts that they couldn't change. But then there's evidence that there's a God at work here miraculously lining this all up with Jesus. Fulfilled prophecy. Hard to refute it. Interesting uh, article by, by uh, Hugh Ross. He's an astrophysicist, and he's done a lot of work on, uh, so why believe? And he did some study of prophecies. There's, there's, there are hundreds of prophecies. He just took 13 and went down them from the Old Testament. And then he goes on to say this. He uses probability, which kind of, lose, he loses me here, but that's okay. Let's try this. So since these 13 prophecies cover most sep- mostly separate and independent events, the probability of chance occurrence of all 13 is about 1 in 10 to the 138th power. That's a lot. He says, for the sake of putting the figure into perspective, now he, as a physicist he goes into this, this probability can be compared to the statistical chance that the second law of thermodynamics will be reversed in a given situation. For example, that a gasoline engine will refrigerate itself during its combustion cycle. Or that heat will flow from a cold body to a hot body. Never has happened, never will. So he says that chance, that chance of happening is 1 in 10 to the 80th power, not even close to the other. Stating it simple, based on these 13 prophecies alone, the Bible record may be said to be the vastly more reliable than the second law of thermodynamics. Convince so many people. There's just no way you can get around it if you put your brain in gear and you try to process this and see what is this. I remember for me, my early days of, of believing, um, this is pretty radical stuff we're asked to believe, isn't it? And so, fortunately, I had somebody around me who just began feeding me books. First book, book I read was Know Why You Believe. So why do I believe this? You know, my life could maybe change if I believe that tree over there is God and I believe it enough. I need to kind of have a real sense of conviction that what I'm banking on, what I'm deciding to throw my life into is true. And so someone gave me that book and I kept reading more books and asking more questions and asking more questions. And the more I did, the more I discovered the scriptures, the more I saw that the scriptures give the most coherent, intelligent, reasonable worldview that speaks to every level of our experience and existence, bar none. And when you see about the fulfilled prophecy, you see that our God is a sovereign God and the scriptures can be trusted as to their historicity and their reliability. So his convictions came from history, if you will, the fulfilled history. It came from his observable history, the facts that he saw that he couldn't deny, but also from his story, his personal encounter with the living, resurrected Jesus Christ that he refers to in his words while he is sharing his story. His personal story. And he retold it and he retold it and he retold it through the book of Acts. It's really cool. Now you probably know a little bit of the story of his Damascus Road experience. Pretty radical transformation and encounter. Now you don't need that. I don't need it. Most of us are not going to have this. But what we do need, what we do need to have in our stories is a genuine encounter with the living Jesus Christ. An encounter and a relationship that can be the only explanation for the ongoing transformation and the ongoing direction of your life. 
There should be no other explanation other than God in how you're living your life, how you're able to push through the mess that life throws at you, the challenges that you're facing, the doubts that maybe come in and come out, that you continue on and there's no other explanation for how God changed your life than that he indeed exists. So we need to read, we need to reflect, we need to engage our minds, we need to engage our hearts, we need to engage our will. That's how we experience that. We need to be convinced. And if we're not, we're going to cave. We're going to sign out. We're going to compromise. We're going to sit down. We will not give our lives for something that we are not convinced about. It doesn't mean that we're going to understand everything, that we're going to have an infallible hold on every aspect of biblical revelation. That's not going to happen. But it means that you know where the truths are to be found. It means that you've, you've looked in and on it, you've studied it, you've grappled with it, you've seen both the external confirmation of it, your mind kind of captures, yeah, okay, this makes sense, as much as it can make sense. Your heart is transformed by it, your life is transformed by it. All this about Jesus Christ, his life his death, his resurrection. So tried and found true is where he wants us. And we're not talking about blind faith. We're talking about a faith grounded in the engagement of your reason, your intellect, and your heart. You'll read, you'll continue to pursue, you'll continue to ask your questions, you'll have your doubts, but you will know where to go with those. You'll be free, you'll be convinced. And then the third trait that we see in our buddy is this. He was gracious. He was free, he was convinced, and he was gracious. So what I didn't show you in what he said was this. When he says, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me may become what I am. But then he adds, except for these chains. That was very nice of him. He says, I'd love for you to experience everything that I have experienced, but I don't want you to have to go through what I've gone through. I don't want you to have to have these chains. So the experience of Jesus Christ, who incarnated himself in grace and in truth, that's how he continues to reveal himself, in grace and truth. So we're locked in on the truth, unshakable conviction and confidence in the words and in the works of Jesus. But we are gracious, full of grace in how we express it, how we communicate it to others, how these convictions are communicated. The impact of grace, the impact of a gracious person, how much you care is so powerful and often more powerful than what you say. So Paul was captured by God's grace. Paul was captured by the the incredible, radical love of God expressed in Christ on the cross for him. That God himself went through the excruciating moral, spiritual, physical pain and suffering for him because there was no other way that his sins could be forgiven, that he could have a relationship with God because God needed to remove from Paul his unrighteousness, his sin, his rebellion. But someone had to pay for that. And so it was placed on Jesus. And Jesus paid the price for him. Paul, who was so self-righteous, so religious, so godly, needed to have a Savior. And he experienced that. And he was never the same when he understood what a, what a, what a, a recipient of grace he was. 
He, and he was able to make this statement, which I believe was absolutely, absolutely, he believed this at the very core. He said this, here is a trustworthy statement. And he, hadn't, he, couldn't, he has never gotten over this. This is later in his life. This is not right at the beginning. The more he walked with Christ, the more he was aware of, of God's grace. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. You know, the longer you kind of journey with Christ, the more aware you are of what a God full of grace he is. I am always, always amazed with how patient he is with me. I would have run out of patience with me probably three days into this adventure, but he's still hanging in there with me. I still have such a long way to go, but he's always there. He's always pulling for me. He's always ready to forgive me. He's always ready to encourage me. Full of grace. To be fully alive, to live a life worth living, we need to be grace-infused, salvation-infused. That's the fuel. That's the power. That's what enables us to live a life worth living. So to summarize, these traits and many others you could find in Paul's life had their source in Paul's encounter and growing relationship with the resurrected Jesus Christ. Through this relationship, he was introduced to the most powerful force in the universe, love. There is no more powerful motivation or force in the universe. And the very love of God invades our life through Christ and through the Spirit of God and takes over as we continue to yield to that. So Christianity is not ultimately connected to being connected to a religious system with its doctrines and its practices. It is a relationship with the living God through Christ who comes into our lives and begins his transformation work, turning us into the people he created us to be, enabling us to begin to fulfill the purpose for which he created us. And if we're not in a journey to discover that, we're not really alive. We're not really alive. So, a choice to be made. Sit in the audience and hear the stories shared by others. Buy into all it is that the, the powerful and the connected and the lucky ones have on planet earth to have anything you want do whatever you want to do sit in that audience or stand with christ and with paul and with the legion of forgiven grace-filled and grace-fueled believers throughout the ages choice to be made and you know it's been two thousand years of ongoing stories of people just like People, jars of clay, just like you and me, with our weaknesses and our struggles and our inconsistencies, but who move through increasingly fulfilling who they were created to be in their lives and what they were created to do on planet Earth. So the challenge here is to make that choice, to choose a life worth living, a life of eternal impact a life motivated by the grace and the love and the truth and the reality of Jesus Christ.
as revealed through scriptures and as revealed by his spirit in your lives. And this Paul and his colleagues, it was said of them in Thessalonica in Acts 17, those who have turned the world upside down have come here also. You are placed on planet earth under this current realm of darkness, the kingdom of darkness. You are planted here to start turning things upside down. You are planted here to make a difference. You are planted to bring light, to bring life, to bring hope, to bring encouragement into the lives of people, to live that out because that's why Jesus came. And he wants to use you and he wants to use me. Now you may have a hard time believing that he can do that. Trust me, he can do that. So you begin where you are, where you're living, to be an emissary of his truth, of his grace, to reflect the freedom that you are not controlled by everything around you, by your appetites, by your passions. Those are all controlled and under subjection to Jesus Christ. So we choose life. We choose grace. We choose love. In Christ, I found the ultimate party. In Christ, I found the ultimate purpose. 